Ancient Egypt, The Light of the World, Books 5 and 6, The Sign Language of Astronomical Mythology, Parts 1 and 2, by Gerald Massey, read by Graham Dunlop, edited by Darren Grimes. The Sign Language of Astronomical Mythology, Book 5, The Primitive African Paradise. It may be said that the dawn of African civilization came full circle in Egypt, but that the earliest glimmer of the light, which turned the darkness into day, for all the earth first issued from the inner land. The veriest beginning must have been coeval with the creature that first developed a thumb to wield a weapon or to shape an implement for human use. When in the far-off past, but little difference could have been detected twixt the monkey and the pygmy race of human aborigines. It is improbable that we shall get back any nearer to a beginning for the human being among the types extant than with those forest dwarfs, of whom a recent traveler says, They have no records or traditions of the past, no regard for time, nor any fetish rites. They do not seek to know the future by occult means, as do their neighbors. In short, they are, to my thinking, the closest link with the original Darwinian anthropoid apes extant. These little folk of the forest are still upon the lowest step in the ascent of man. Not because they have retrograded, but because they have never grown. So far as is known, the pygmies have no verbal language of their own, whatsoever words they may have gathered from outsiders. Otherwise, language with them is the same as it was in the beginning, with a few animal sounds and gesture signs. They have no totems, no signs of tattoo scored upon their bodies, no rites of puberty no eating of the parent in honor for their primitive sacrament. Judging from specimens of the pygmies that have been brought to England from the Ituri forest, the foundation of the negroid features, the thick lips and large spreading nostrils was laid in the pygmean phase of development. But up to the present time, the pygmy has only reached the peppercorn stage of hair and has not yet attained the kinky locks of the full-blooded negro. A German traveler lately claimed to have discovered a people in the forest of Borneo who show some vestige of the ancestral tale. He saw the tale on a child about six years old belonging to the Ponen tribe. There was the appendage, sure enough, not very long, but plainly visible, hairless, and about the thickness of man's little finger. Also, the persistent rumor that some remains of a semi-simian race are yet extant among the hidden secrets of the old dark land is not incredible to the evolutionist. According to the Lady Luggard, there is a tribe in Nigeria who are reputed not to have lost their tails. The African pygmies, however, have not publicly proclaimed the tale. The sole race that can be traced among the aborigines all over the earth Above ground or below is the dark race of a dwarf Negrito type, and the only one possible motherland on earth of these preliminary people is Africa. No other country possesses the necessary background as a basis for the human beginnings, and so closely were the facts of nature observed and registered by the Egyptians that the earliest divine men in their mythology are portrayed as pygmies. Following the zootypes, the primitive human form of Elder Horus was that of Bis, the dancing dwarf. Bis is a figure of child Horus in the likeness of a Negroid pygmy. He comes capering into Egypt along with the great mother, Apt, from Puanta, 
in the far off south. In reality, Bis Horus is the earliest form of the pygmy ta. In both, the dwarf is the type of man in his most primitive shape. The seven powers that cooperate with Ta are also represented as seven pygmies. Thus, the anthropomorphic type comes into view as a pygmy. Moreover, Ta, the divine dwarf, is the imperfect progenitor of the perfect man in his son Atum. In this way, the Egyptian wisdom registers the fact that the pygmy was the earliest human figure known and that this was brought into Egypt from the forests of Inner Africa and the record made in the mythology. In this mode of registering the natural fact, the Egyptians trace their descent from the folk who were the first in human form, that is, from the pygmies. We have now to summarize a few of the pre-Egyptian evidences for the Inner African beginnings. In one of the later chapters of the Book of the Dead, number 164, later, that is, in position, there are some ancient mystical names which are said to have been uttered in the language of the Nasi, the Negroes, the Anti, and the people of Takenset, or Nubia. Dr. Birch thought this and other chapters were modern because of the presence of Amun-Ra. But the later insertion of a divine name or title does not prove the fundamental matter of the chapter to be late. In this, the Great Mother is saluted as the Supreme Being, the Only One, by the name of Seket Bast, the goddess of sexual passion and strong drink, who is the mistress of the gods, not as wife, but as the promiscuous concubine, she who was uncreated by the gods, and who is mightier than the gods. To her the eight gods offer words of adoration. Therefore they were not then merged in the put circle of the nine, it is noticeable, too, that Seket is not saluted as the consort of Ta. Seket was undoubtedly far more ancient than Ta. But the point is that the outlandish names applied to her in this chapter are quoted from the language of the Negroes. Therefore, parts of the ritual had been composed in those languages. And if in the languages, then in the lands where these languages were spoken, including the country of Nasi, who were so despised by the dynastic Egyptians. This we claim as a partial recognition of the southern origin of the Egyptian mythology. In agreement with this, the Great Mother may be identified in chapter 143 as Apt of Nubia, who had a shrine at Napata on her way to Egypt, kept or kept. In a text upon a steel among the Egyptian monuments at Dorpat, it is said to the worshipper, Make adoration to Apt of the dumb palms to the Lady of the Two Lands. In this text, the old first mother Apt appears as goddess of the mama tree, that is, the dumb palm, which in Egypt is a native of the south. This points to the farther south as the primeval home and habitat of the most ancient hippopotamus goddess, she who thus proceeded Hathor in the southern sycamore as the mother earth or lady of the tree, and who in the dumb palm was the mama or mother of the inner Africans. The king of Egypt, as the Suten, dates from Sut. The dignity is so ancient that the insignia of the pharaohs evidently belonged to a time when the Egyptians were nothing but the girdle of the Negro, and when it was considered a special distinction that the king should complete this girdle with a piece of skin in front and adorn it with the tail of a lioness behind. The oldest and most primitive form of the sacred house in Egypt, known from inscriptions of the ancient empire, 
is a hovel dedicated to Sut for a temple. It looks like a hut of wattle work without daub, and it is prehistoric type of building in the Nile Valley, belonging to a civilization immeasurably lower than that of Egypt. Sut, the son of Apt, was the deity of the first Egyptian gnome. Sut is synonymous with the south from which he came with Horus Behutet, who halted by the way as deity of the second gnome. Milne Edwards has shown the African origin of the ass, and this was preserved by the Egyptians in its pristine purity of form. The serpents of equatorial Africa have their likeness in the huge reptiles portrayed in pictures of the Egyptian underworld. The sycamore fig of Hathor and the palm tree of Tot were imported into Egypt from Central Africa. The burying places of Abydos, especially the most ancient, have furnished millions of shells, pierced and threaded as necklaces, all of which belong to the species of cowries used as money in Africa at the present day. The hose and wooden stands for headrests used by the Egyptians have their prototypes among the East Central African tribes. Dr. Peters found various customs among the Wakintu in Uganda, which made him think the people were connected with the ancient Egyptians. One of these was the practice of embalming the dead and of excavating the rocks. Also, their burial mounds are conical, he says, and look like pyramids. One might fill a volume with figures from inner Africa that were developed and made permanent in the symbolism in Egypt. My Lord the Lion is an African expression used by the Kafirs and others in speaking of the lordly animal, also of the chief as Lion Lord. So likewise in Egypt, Osiris as king of the gods was my lord the crocodile, and King Asa is also called my lord the king as a crocodile. Again, the lion of Motoko is a totem with the kafirs in the neighborhood of Fort Salisbury, Mashanaland. They have a priest of the lion god called the Mondoro, who is venerated as a sort of spirit in lion shape. Sacrifices are offered annually to the lion god at the Zimbabwe of Mashonaland, and it is held by the natives that all the true men pass into the lion form at death, precisely the same as it was with the Manis in the Egyptian ritual, who exclaims on living a second time, I am the lord in lion form, and who rises again when divinized in that image of superhuman power. Such types were inner African when totemic, and as the Lion of Mutoko shows, they were also venerated as representatives of spiritual or superhuman powers, which were deified in Egypt as the crocodile divinities Apt, Neith, and Sebek, and the lion gods Shu, Tefnut, Seket, Horus, and Atumra. In the Egyptian judgment scenes, the baboon or cenocephalus sits upon the scales as the tongue of the balance and a primitive determinative or even-handed justice. This was an inner African type, now continued in Egypt as an image of the judge. In a Namakaland fable, the baboon sits in judgment on the other animals. The mouse had torn the tailor's clothes and laid it to the cat. The cat lays it to the dog the dog to the wood, the wood to the fire, the fire to the water, the water to the elephant, and the elephant to the ant, whereupon the wise judge orders the ant to bite the elephant, 
the elephant to drink the water, the water to quench the fire, the fire to burn the wood, the wood to beat the dog, the dog to bite the cat, and the cat to bite the mouse. And thus the tailor gets satisfaction from the judgment of the wise baboon, whose name is Jan in Namakwa. Whilst that of the Cynocephalus is on in Egyptian. This in the European folktales is the well-known nursery legend of the pig that wouldn't go. How then did this Bushman or Hottentot fable get into the lowermost stratum of the folktales in England? We answer the same way that Tom Thumb did and Jack the Giant Killer and the house that Jack built and many more which are the poor relations reduced from the mythology of Egypt to become the Marchen of the world. Again, the youthful hero here is Horus in Egypt, Hetsi Ibib among the Hottentots, and the redoubtable Little Jack in Britain is also an inner African figure under the name of Kalikalang. The missionary MacDonald says, We know a boy who assumed, much at his own instance, the name of Kalikalang a hero about whom there are so many native tales, reminding one of the class of tales to which Jack the Giant Killer belongs. This is the hero who slays the giant or dragon of drought and darkness, or cuts open the monster that swallowed him, who rescues the lunar lady from her imprisonment, and who makes the ascent to heaven by means of a tree, a stalk, or, as in the case of Child Horus, a papyrus reed. In his Uganda Protectorate, Sir H. Johnston has reproduced a local legend of creation, derived from the natives, which contains certain constituent elements of the nursery tale of Jack the Giant Killer. Kintu was the first man. When he came from the unknown, he found nothing in Uganda. No food, no water, no animals, nothing but a blank. He had a cow with him, and on this he lived. The cow represented the earth as giver of food. Kintu is a form of the universal hero, the hero to whom the tests are applied for discovering whether or no he is the real heir. Kintu eats or disposes of 10,000 carcasses of roasted cows, and thus proves himself to be the man indeed, as does Jack who outwits the giant in a similar manner. The story includes the beanstalk, or the bean, with other fragments found in the European Marchen, including their bringing of death into the world through the disobedience of Kintu, the first man, or by his violating the law of taboo. The Wakintu of Uganda or Rhodesia derived their name from Kintu, the first man of the Central African legends. In a Zulu legend, the underworld is the land of cannibals. Here dwells the devourer from whom the youthful hero makes his escape together with his sister, by climbing up a tree into the sky country, just as Horus climbs the tree of dawn in coming forth from the underworld. We read in the ritual of a golden god-headed ape, which is three palms in height, without legs or arms. The speaker in this character says, My course is the course of the golden Cynocephalus, three palms in height, without legs or arms, in the temple of Ta." What this means, no mortal knows. It is known, however, that the dog-headed ape, as Annie the Saluter, was emblematic of the moon. Now, in the Kafir story of Simbukumbukwana, there is a child born without legs or arms who obviously represents the moon in its changes. 
He began to speak on the day of his birth. The girl that was first born, who grew up in the valley and lived in the hole of an ant heap, is called his sister. She has the power to give him legs and arms by repeating his name and saying, have legs and arms, and to deprive him of them by saying, shrink legs and arms. This, as a figure of waning and waxing, helps us to understand the dog-headed ape of gold as an image of the moon in the waxing and waning halves of the lunation. In the story of the glutton, the conquerors of the swallower are the mother and her twins. These, in an Egyptian form of the mythos, are Sut and Horus, the twin brethren, who war against the monster as two lions, the Rehu, on behalf of their mother, who is the Lady of Light and the Moon. In this way, we can trace some of the oldest of the folk tales concerning the Deluge and the Lost Paradise, the hero as the wonder-working child who climbs a tree or stalk and slays the monster of the dark, to inner Africa, and follow these and others in the mythology of the Egyptians on their way to becoming the universal legends of the human race. The mythology, religious rites, totemic customs, and primitive symbolism of Egypt are crowded with survivals from identifiable inner African origins. The Egyptian ka, or image of a spiritual self, was preceded by various rude but representative images of the dead. Livingstone tells us that the natives about Lake Moor make little idols of a deceased father and mother. To these they present beer, flour, and bang. They light a fire for the spirits to sit round and smoke in concert with their living relatives. The Yu-speaking natives of the Gold Coast also have their kra, or idolon, which existed from before the birth of a child and is exactly identical with the Egyptian kra. It is a common practice with the Bantu tribes, described by the author of the Uganda Protectorate, for the relatives of deceased persons to carve crude little images as likenesses of the dead and set them up for worship or propitiation. Offerings are made to these in place of the later Ka of the Egyptians. The earlier type of the departed was a bodily portrait, hence the mummy. The Ka is a later spirit likeness, but both imply the same recognition of the ancestral spirits that live on after death. The spirit huts provided for the honored dead in the dense forests of Central Africa, as by the Wayamwizi for their Musimo, by the Congo Pygmies, Gil, and by the Nilotic Negroes, which the Portuguese called devil houses, are prototypes of the Ka chambers in Egyptian tombs. Erecting a little hut for the spirits is a recognizable mode of propitiation. Lionel Deckel as we have seen, describes his Wanyamwezi as making little huts of grass or of green boughs even when on the march and offering them to the Musimo, or spirits of their ancestors. One of the funeral offerings found in Theban tombs is a loaf of bread in the shape of a cone, or a pastille, or a model in burnt terracotta that images the loaf. Why the offering should be conical is admittedly unknown. This typical cone is inter-African, and in a most peculiar way, the Yao people have the custom of making an offering to the dead in a conical form. They do not know how to make bread, but their offering to the spirits consists of little flour. 
This they let fall slowly from the fingers on the ground, so that it may form a pile in the shape of a sugar loaf. If the cone should shape perfectly, it is an omen that the offering is acceptable to the spirits. It may be suggested in passing that the conical shape of the pile and flower and the funerary loaf was derived from that of the grave mound of earth or stones dropped over the buried corpse as the still earlier tribute offered to the dead. British peasants give the name of fairy loaves to the fossil akini or sea urchins found in Neolithic graves. Obviously, these loaves were representative of funerary food that was likewise offered to the dead. The skeleton of a young woman clasping a child in her arms was discovered in a round barrow on Dunstable Downs, the burial mound being edged round with these fairy loaves. Again, in the mysteries of the Yao people, the young girls are initiated by a female who is called the cook, the cook of the mystery. This is the instructress who makes the mystery or is the cook that prepares it and who is mistress of the ceremony. She is the wise woman who initiates the girls and anoints their bodies with an oil containing various magical ingredients. She clothes them in their earliest garment, the primitive loincloth that was first assumed at puberty with proud pleasure and afterwards looked upon askance as the sign of civilized woman's shame. Now this primitive personage has been divinized as the cook in the Kamite pantheon. In Egyptian, Tate signifies to cook, and this is the name of a goddess Tate, who is the cook in paradise and a preparer of the deceased in the greater mysteries of the ritual, where she is the cook of the mystery more obviously than a cook as preparer of food. The deceased, in speaking of his investiture for the Garden of Aru, cries, let my vesture be girt on me by Tate. That is, by the goddess, who is the divine cook by name, and who clothes the initiate in the garment or girdle that here takes the place of the loincloth in the more primitive mysteries of inner Africa. The Egyptian record, when correctly read, will tell us plainly that the human birthplace was a land of the papyrus reed. The crocodile and hippopotamus, the land of the great lakes in Karua. The Chloe of Ptolemy, or in the Apta, at the horn point of the earth, that is, in Equatoria, from whence the sacred river ran to brim the valley of the Nile with plenty. The track of civilization with cities springing in its footprints is seaward from the south, not upward from lower Egypt which was a swamp when Upper Egypt was already the African home of civilization. The Egyptians always gave priority to the south over the delta in the north. Also, the south was and is the natural habitat of the oldest fauna and most peculiar of the sacred zootypes. It is in vain we judge of the race by the figures and faces of the rulers portrayed in monumental times. Primary data must be sought for against the fellahin and corroborated by the skulls. Captain Burton wrote to me in 1883 saying, You are quite right about the African origin of the Egyptians, and I have sent home a hundred skulls to prove it. Does anyone know what became of these skulls? The African legends tell us that the Egyptians, Zulus, and others looked backward to a land of the papyrus reed as the primeval country of the human race and that on this, as we shall see, the Egyptians founded their circumpolar paradise in the astronomical mythology. 
There is a widespread African tradition, especially preserved by the Kafir tribes, that the primeval birthplace was a land of reeds. The Zulus told the missionary Calloway that men originally came out of the bed of reeds. This birthplace in the reeds was called Yothanga, named from the reed. No one knew where it was, but all insisted that the natal reed bed of the race was still extant. It was a sign of lofty lineage for the native aristocracy to claim descent from ancient Uthanga, the primeval land of birth. The Basutos identify Uthanga, the human birthplace, with a cavern in the earth that was surrounded by a morass of reeds. They also cling so affectionately to the typical reed that when a child is born, they suspend a reed above the hut to announce the birth of the babe thus showing in the language of signs that the papyrus reed is still a type of the primitive birthplace in which child Horus was cradled on the flower of the papyrus plant or reed. The Zulu birthplace in the bed of reeds was repeated and continued in the nest of reeds and the morass that were mythically represented as the birthplace of the child, which was constellated as the uranograph of Horus springing from the reed. What indeed is the typical reed of Egypt? first in the upper, next in the lower land, but a symbol of the birthplace in the African bed of reeds. Lower Egypt, called Uat in the hieroglyphics, has the same name as the papyrus reed. Also, Uwati is a title of the great mother Isis who brought forth child Horus on her lap of the papyrus flower. Uat in Egyptian is the name of Lower Egypt. Uat is the oasis. Uat is the water. Uat is wet, fresh, evergreen. Uat is the reed of Egypt, the papyrus reed, and the name of the most ancient mother in the Kamite mythology. Seb, the father of food, is clothed with papyrus reeds. The Mount of Earth was imaged as a papyrus plant in the water of space. Lastly, the Mount of Amenta in the ritual rises from a bed of papyrus reeds. Hor Apollo says of the Egyptians, to denote ancient descent, they depict a roll of papyrus, and by this they signify primeval food. This is the same as with the Zulus. The papyrus reed Uat was turned into a symbol of most ancient descent precisely because it had been the primeval food of the most ancient people, a totem of the most ancient mother of the race when called Uati in Egypt, and a type of the African paradise. As the symbolism shows, people were sometimes derived from and represented by the food on which they lived. Thus, the papyrus reed that symbolizes ancient food and long descent would be the sign of the people who once lived on or who ate the shoots of the water plant. The Egyptians continued to be eaters of the lotus and papyrus shoots. Theirs was the land of the reed, and they, like the Zulus or the Japanese or the Pueblos, were the reed people in accordance with the primitive mode of heraldry, just as with the Arunta tribes, the Wichiti Grub people, are those who live on the Wichiti Grub as their special totemic food. In later times, the papyrus plant was eaten by the Egyptians as a delicacy. Its shoots were gathered for that purpose annually. Bread made from the roots and the seed of the lotus was the gourmand's delight. Lily loaves are mentioned in the papyrus Anastasi. It is said in the hymn to the Nile that when food is abundant, the poor man disdains to eat the lotus or papyrus plant. 
which shows that it had been his diet when other food was scarce. The lotus and the papyrus are the two water plants worn as a headdress by the two figures that represent the Nile south and north, and who are often seen binding the flowers to the Sam symbol of the upper and lower Egypt, as if joining the two countries together as the one land of the reed. Uthlanga is not irrecoverable. We glean from other Zulu legends that this was the African birthplace in the bed of reeds where the two children, black and white, were born of dark and day, and where the race of the reed people broke off in the beginning. This cradle of creation is repeated mythically with child Horus in his nest of reeds, or bed of the papyrus plant, when the field of reeds was figured in the heavens as the primitive paradise of food and drink. In the so-called cosmogony of the Japanese, it is set forth that the first thing in which life appeared on earth at the beginning was the reed, and the earliest land or country place stand, Kunitoko, Tachi, was the land of the reed. Japan was named as the central land of the reed expanse from the fields of reed, whether geographical on the earth or astronomical in the fields of heaven. The great reed of the Japanese mythos is identical with the papyrus reed that represented the Mount of Earth in Egypt or the Lotus of Meru in India. Any country figured as being atop of the reed would be the midland of the world, as Japan is said to be, and the Kamite reed will explain why the land of the Kamai should be called Ashihara, the plain of reeds, when the reed is identified with the papyrus plant. Ashihara no Naka Tsukuni, the middle kingdom of the reed plain, which lies upon the summit of the globe, is an ancient name for Japan. This, if mundane, corresponds to the land of the papyrus reed in equatorial Africa, the summit of our earth, or, if only mythical, i.e. astronomical, to the reed field of the Eru paradise upon the summit of the mountain heaven. Again, the great reed standing up out of the water is identical with the typical mount of earth in the Navajo mythology. As the mount grew higher, higher grew the reed. At the time of the deluge, all that lived took refuge there and were rescued from the drowning waters by the reed. This is the papyrus reed, which cradled Horus amid the waters, like the infant Moses in the Ark of Bulrush, applied in a folktale on a larger scale. It is now proposed to seek for the birthplace of the beginnings in Central Africa, the land of the papyrus reed round the equatorial lakes, by the aid of the Egyptian astronomical mythology and the legendary lore. In the first place, the Kamai of Egypt, like the Kamai of Japan, identify themselves by name as the reed people. And the goddess Uati is the African great mother in the bed of reeds. For it was thence in the region of the two lakes and in the land of the papyrus reed, that souls in the germ first emanated as the soul of life from water. The kafir tradition thus appears to preserve the natural fact which the Egyptians rendered mythically, by means of the reed plant as a symbol of the primeval birthplace on earth, with Horus issuing from the waters on the reed, which became the lap of life, the cradle and the ark of the eternal child. It was also called the shoot of the papyrus, the primitive Natsur, a spring of water welling from abysmal depths of earth, 
that furnished food in the papyrus reed and other edible plants is the earliest form in which the source of life was figured by the Camite mystery teachers. This is recorded in the ritual. It was in the birthplace of the reeds and the reed people in the region of the reeds that light first broke out of darkness in the beginning of the domain of Sut, and where the twin children of darkness and light were born. The Mother Earth, as womb of universal life, was the producer of food in various kinds, and the food was represented as her offspring. Horus, on his papyrus, imaged food in the water plant, as well as in the later lentils, the branch of the tree, or in general, vegetation. The stands of the offerings presented to the gods in the ritual are commonly crowned with papyrus plants, which commemorate the food that was primeval. Thus, the doctrine of life issuing in and from the papyrus reed was Egyptian as well as Japanese. Naturally, the earliest life thus emanating from the water was not human life, but this would be included sooner or later in the mythical representation. Hence, the legend of the first man or person who issued from a reed in the water of the deluge. In this American Indian version, the reed is a figure of the birthplace instead of the Zulu bed of reeds, or Uthanga, the land of reeds. But the typical origin is the same, and as Egyptian, the mythos is to be explained. The origin of a savior in the guise of a little child is traceable to child Horus, who brought new life to Egypt every year as the Masu of the inundation. This was Horus and his pre-solar and pre-human characters of the fish, the shoot of the papyrus or the branch of endless years. In a later stage, the image of Horus on his papyrus represented the young god as solar cause in creation. But in the primitive phase, it was a soul of life or of food ascending from the water and vegetation, as he who climbs the stalk ranging from child Horus to the Polynesian hero and to Jack ascending heavenward by means of his beanstalk. Now, of all the lands on earth, there is no reed land to be compared with the land of the reeds round the equatorial lakes, where the papyrus grows about the waters and jungles and forests, so dense that a charging herd of hippopotami could hardly penetrate the bush, which stands out of the water full fifteen feet in height. And there, if anywhere upon this earth, Uthanga, the original reed land or birth land in the reeds, will yet be found. This is the natural fact which underlies the mythical representation when the Egyptians show us Horus on his papyrus, rising from his natal bed of the papyrus plant. Child Horus on his papyrus is the reed born in mythology who reflects the natural fact of the human birthplace in the field the bed or nest of reeds on earth or in heaven. That is the African oasis of the beginning, whether the offspring represents food or other elemental force. Now the Egyptian Eru or paradise established by Ra was a field of reeds in seven divisions, and these were papyrus reeds which sprang up from the marshes. Thus, the Camite paradise was a land of the papyrus plant, repeated on the summit of the mountain heaven at the north celestial pole. According to their way of registering a knowledge of the beginnings, the Egyptians were well acquainted with the equatorial regions, which they designated Apta, the uppermost point, the mount, or literally the horn point, of the earth, 
This was afterwards reproduced at the highest point above, when the primeval birth land was repeated as the land of rebirth for spirits in heaven. It has now to be shown that much of the sign language of astronomy, which still survives on the celestial globe, is interpretable on the ground and for the reason that the fundamental data of the underlying mythos was Egyptian, although the commencement in Africa may have been indefinitely earlier than the fulfillment in Egypt. From the beginning, certain types evolved in the Egyptian mythology, have been configurated in the planisphere, many of which remain extant on the celestial globe today. As a concept of primitive thought, life came into the world by water. Hence, in the mysteries of Osiris, water is the throne of the eternal. Earth itself was the producer or the mother of the element, the wet nurse in mythology. And water was her child, by whom an ever-renewing source was imaged as the type in Child Horus, the eternal child. Water, we shall see, was self-delineated as very heaven. Drought was self-delineated as a huge black reptile coiling around the mount of earth, night after night and drinking up the water of light day after day. Darkness and light were self-delineated as two immense wide-winged birds, one black and one white, which overspread the earth. The great squat-headed evil Apap in the Egyptian drawings is probably a water reptile and possibly represents the mysterious monster of the lakes in the legends of Central Africa. But wheresoever its habitat and nature, it supplied one of the types that were depicted in the astronomical ceiling of Kam the types that have now to be followed by means of the mythography and the sign language of the starry sphere, amongst which Apop, the hellish snake of drought and dearth and darkness, still survives as our own constellation Hydra, the enormous reptile imaged in the celestial waters of the southern heaven. The hero of light that pierced the serpent of drought, or the dragon of darkness, was also represented as the golden hawk later eagle, and at Hermopolis the Egyptians showed the figure of a hippopotamus upon which a hawk stood fighting with a serpent. Now, as the hippopotamus was a zootype of the Mother Earth and the water of space, the hawk and serpent fighting on her back portrayed the war of light and darkness, which had been fought from the beginning, the war that was a primary subject figured in the astronomical mythology. The hawk represented Horus, who was the bruiser of the serpent's head. Thus, the same conflict that was portrayed at Hermopolis may be seen in the constellation of Serpentarius as a uranograph depicted in the planisphere. The Egyptians called the equator Apta as the highest land or summit of the earth. This, the earthly Apta in the equatorial regions, was then rendered mythically as the Apta or highest point of the northern heavens in the astronomical representation. And naturally, the chief facts of the earthly paradise were repeated for a purpose in the circumpolar highland. Hence, the Aru paradise as a field of papyrus reeds, oozing with the water of life that supplied the world. From the two great lakes into which the element divided at the head of the celestial river, or the White Nile of the Milky Way. In coming down the Nile from Karua, the lake country, the migrants had to pass through parching desert sands, which made the south a synonym for Sut, as it is in Egyptian. 
Their future heaven was in the north, whence came the blessed breezes with the breath of healing from the very land of life. And all the time ahead of them was that fixed polar star in the north, fixed, that is, as a center of rest and peace amidst the starry revolutions of the heavens. Emerging from the wilderness, they saw in Egypt an oasis watered by the river Nile. Cooler breezes brought the breath of life to meet them on the way, and plenty of sweet, fresh water realized the heaven of the African. The Kamai found their old lost paradise in Uat, the name signifying green, fresh, well-watered. Uat was literally the land of wet as water. Here then was heaven in the north, heaven as the north, heaven in the water and the breezes of the north. And on this they founded a celestial garden or enclosure, which was configured by them in the northern heaven as the primitive paradise of edible plants and plenty of water. The river Nile was traced back by the Egyptians to a double source. This in later times was localized at Elephantine, but not originally. The Nile was known to issue from the two great lakes, which were the southern source of the river according to the ritual. A tablet discovered at Gebel Sicile refers to two of the ancient festivals of the Nile which had fallen into disuse in the time of Ramses II. In this it is said, I know what is written in the bookstore kept in the library, that whenever the Nile cometh forth from the two fountains, the offerings of the gods are to be plenty. The river was timed to come forth from its double welling place on the 15th of Epiphy, and the inundation to reach Gebel Sicile, or Canut, on the 15th of Tot. The first of these dates corresponds to our May the 31st, the second to August the 4th. This allows two months and three days for the inundation to travel from its swollen and overflowing double-breasted source, wheresoever that was localized to Gebel Sicile. The length of the river from the Victoria Nianza to the sea is now estimated at 3,370 miles. It is less than 3,000 to Sicile, and the water flowing at the rate of only 2 miles an hour would make 3,120 miles in 65 days. This seems to afford good evidence that the two fountains were identified with the two lakes, and that the double source was afterwards repeated locally, lower down at Elephantine. The Egyptians had tracked the river to its sources in the recesses called the Tuat of the South, and the inundation to the bursting forth and overflowing of the southern lakes at high flood. The mother of water in the northern heaven was imaged as the water cow. Another type of the birthplace was the thigh, or haunch, of the cow, and one of the two lakes at the head of the Milky Way in the region of the northern pole was called the Lake of the Thigh. The Osiris, on attaining the divine regions of water, air, and food, or as we say, heaven, exultingly exclaims, I alight at the thigh of the lake. This was the thigh of the cow that was constellated in heaven at least twice over as a sign of the birthplace, when the birth was water, or Horus, the child of the inundation. Now the name of Tangayika, from the African Tanga, for the thigh, the nika, or the water, signifies the lake of the thigh, or haunch. But the thigh is only a symbol which in sign language denotes the birthplace that was imaged more completely by the cow itself, 
the water cow of Apt in Apta, which represented Earth as the great mother and giver of the water that, according to the legend, burst forth from the abyss in the deluge of the inundation when the lake was formed at first. The lake of the thigh equals Tanga, Nika, was constellated in the northern heaven by the name of Uranograph, and this lake of the thigh, or haunch, was the lake of the water cow. Hence we find the cow and the haunch are blended together in one group of stars that is labeled the Meskin, as the womb or birthplace at the summit of the pole. And although this lake in Africa is a little over the line to the south, it is near enough to have been reckoned on it, and therefore to have been the earthly prototype of the great lake at the horn point of the northern pole, which the ritual denominates the Lake of Equipoise as well as the lake of the thigh. Amongst the other signs that were configured at the summit of the northern heaven as object pictures of the old primeval homeland were the fields of the papyrus reed, the waters welling from unfathomable depths, the ancient mother as the water cow of Apt, who was the living image of Apta as the birthplace in the reeds. Thus, with the aid of their uranographs, the Egyptian mystery teachers showed the birthplace in the fields of the papyrus plant. The reed bed in Yothanga, where the black and white twins of darkness and day were born. The birthplace of the water flowing from its secret source in the land of the two lakes called the Lake of Equipoise and the Lake of the Thigh, or Tonga, whence the name Tongayika. There was the water that forever flowed in fields, forever fresh and green, which figured now the water of life that has no limit, and the food that is eternal in the Kamite eschatology. In the astronomy, Apta was the mount of earth as a figure of the equator, whereas the summit of the circumpolar paradise was the mount of heaven as a figure of the pole. In the final picture of the ritual, the mount of Amenta stands in a morass of the papyrus reed. The cow that represents the great mother is portrayed in the two forms of Apt, the water cow, and Hathor, the milch cow, as the typical mother amongst the reeds in the place of birth on earth, and thence of rebirth in heaven. Thus, as we interpret it, the imagery of Equatoria was commemorated in the uranographic representation or sign language of the astronomical mythology. Sir Harry Johnston sees traces of the Egyptian or Hamitic influence amongst the more primitive dwarfs and Negroes of the equatorial regions, but this he speaks of as a result of a returning wave from the Nilotic races. Assuredly, the Kamite race of migratory colonizers on the Lower Nile did return in later times in search of the old home. Their voyages by water and travels by land had become the subject of popular tales. But this was as travelers, adventurers, naturalists, and miners who explored their hinterland, dug for metals or gems, imported strange animals, and transplanted precious trees to furnish incense for the goddesses and gods. It was not the grown-up, civilized Ruti of Egypt who called themselves the men, par excellence, that went back to beget the ape-like race of Negroid dwarfs in the central regions of Africa, or to people the impenetrable forest with non-civilized, ignorant, undeveloped mannequins, that was not the root of evolution. It is an ancient and world-traveling tradition that heaven and earth were close together in the beginning. 
Now the heavens signified in the oldest of all mythologies. The Camite was the starry heaven of night, upraised by Shu, as he stood upon the mount of earth. This was the heaven in which the stars of our two bears revolved around the pole. The writer of the present work has seen in equatorial regions how the southern cross arises and the bears go down for those who are going south. The northern pole star dips and disappears, and with it sinks the primal paradise of mythology in general. It was configured in the stars about the pole. On coming north again, the old lost paradise arose once more as paradise regained. At a certain point, in regions of no latitude, the pole star rests forever on the horizon in the north, or, as the Egyptians figured it, upon the mount of earth in Apta. The heaven of the ancient legends and of the equatorial astronomers was close to the earth, because the pole star rested on the summit of the mount like Anup on his mountain. Such traditions were deposited as the mythical motive representing natural fact, however much the fact may be obscured. Now the ordinary heaven of night and day could not supply the natural fact. Heaven is no farther off from earth than ever. There is a starting point in the various mythologies that is equivalent to this beginning, at which time heaven rested on the earth and was afterwards separated from it by the mythical uplifter, of the sky. The name of heaven denotes the upheaven. Nut, or Nu, the Egyptian name for heaven, has the meaning and the sign of uplifted. And there was but one starting point at which the heaven could be said to rest upon the earth. This was in the regions of no latitude, where the pole stars were to be seen upon the two horizons. As the nomads traveled towards the north, this heaven of the pole, which touched the earth in Equatoria, naturally rose up from the mount, or as mythically rendered, it was raised by Shu, who stood upon the steps of Am Kemen, to reach the height and push the two apart with his huge staff that was the giant's figure of the north celestial pole. There was no solstices in Apta. Time, if any, was always equinoctial there. And on this equal measure of day and dark, the first division of the circle, the sep, or turnaround of the sphere, was founded. When Shu upraised the sky, it was equally divided between Sut and Horus, the portion of each being half of the water, half of the mount, or half of the twenty-four hours. And this was the time made permanent in Amenta, where the later register for all such simple mysteries was kept. There are twelve hours light and twelve hours dark in this netherworld, the same as in the equatorial regions. It is the equinoctial time of Shu and Mati. The earth was not an upright pillar in Apta, with the starry sphere revolving around it on a horizontal plane. The risings and settings of the stars were vertical, and the two fixed centers of the poles were on the two horizons, or, in accordance with the Egyptian expression, on the northern and southern sides of the Mount of Earth. The sky, as the celestial water, was also divided into two great lakes, one to the north and one to the south of the Mount. These survive in the ritual as the Lake of Karu and the Lake of Ru, to the south and the north of the Baku Hill, on which heaven resteth. The system of dividing the celestial water was apparently founded on the two great equatorial lakes at the head of the Nile, which were repeated in the two lakes of Amenta 
and in the other pictures of the double source of the great stream, now figured in heaven, at the head of the Milky Way as the stream without end. The Egyptians also preserved traditions of Tanutur, the holy land that was known by the name of Puntur Puanta. Maspero spells the name Puanit. The present writer has rendered it Puanta. One meaning of Anta in Egyptian is yellow or golden, hence Puanta the Golden. The name is applied in the ritual to the land of dawn or Anta as the golden, the land of gold. This was the mythical or divine Anta in Amenta, where the tree of golden Hathor grew. In that case, Puanta or Punt is identical with the Orient and the mythos. But the land of Puanta is also geographical, and there was an Egyptian tradition that this divine country could be reached by ascending the River Nile. It was reported that in a remote region south, you came to an unknown great water which bathed Puanta, or the Holy Land, Tanuter. This, we suggest, was the nearest and largest of all the African lakes, now called the Victoria Nyanza from which the River Nile debouches on its journey north. We gather from the inscriptions of Der el-Bahari that the inhabitants of that Puanta for which the expedition of Queen Hatepshu sailed were lake dwellers. The houses built on piles were reached by means of ladders, and pile dwellings imply that the people of Puanta were dwellers on the lake. Further, it is recorded on the monuments that two naval expeditions were made by the Egyptians to the land of Puanta. The first occurred in the reign of Sankara, the last king of the 11th dynasty, long before the expedition to Puanta was made in the time of Queen Hatshepsu, 18th dynasty. The leader of this earlier expedition was a nobleman named Hanu who described his passage inland through the desert and the cultivated land. On his return to Egypt from the gold land, he speaks of coming back from the land of Seba, and thus far identifies the one with the other. He says, When I returned from Seba, or Seboa, I had executed the king's command, for I brought him back all kinds of presents which I had met with in the ports of Puanta, and I came back by the road of Wak and of Hanu. Inscription Rohan. In the story of the shipwrecked sailor, the speaker says of his voyage, I was going to the mines of Pharaoh, and a ship that was 150 cubits long and 40 cubits wide, with 150 of the best sailors in Egypt. He was shipwrecked on an island, which turned out to be in the land of Puanta. The serpent ruler of the island says to the sailor, I am prince of the land of Puanta. It is not said that this was the land of the mines, but he was sailing to the mines when he reached the land of Puanta. An inscription found in the tomb of Juana and Thua of the 18th dynasty, which tomb was rich in gold, informs us that the gold had been brought from the lands of the south. Also, the Maze tribes are known to have had relations with the people of Puanta. Puanta, as a geographical locality, is said to lie next to the spirit world, or the land of the shades, which is spoken of as being in the south, but as far away as sailors could go upstream. In fact, it was where the celestial waters came from heaven at the sources of the Nile. 
This surely means that Puanta, the gold land, was at the summit of this world, and therefore closest to the next, where there was nothing but the firmamental water betwixt them and the islands of the blessed. If Mashana land should prove to be the gold land of Puanta, this would be the geographical Puanta, not Arabia, from which the golden Hathor and the hawk of gold originally came. The symbolism of the ruined cities of Mashonaland, discovered by the explorer Bent, suffices at least to show that the Egyptians of a very remote age had worked the gold mines in that country. Horus on his pedestal or papyrus is a figure not to be mistaken, whether the bird is a hawk or a vulture, for there was also a very ancient Horus of the vulture that was the bird of Neith. The hawk or vulture on the pedestal or papyrus, Wat, was indefinitely older than the human type of Horus, the child in Egypt. Horus as the hawk or vulture standing on the column within the necklace zone or cestus was the child of Hathor. And these two, Hathor and Horus, were the divine mother and child. The gold hawk of Horus is connected with the Egyptian mines, whilst precious metals and stones especially the turquoise, were expressed sacred to the goddess Hathor. The Egyptian goddess Hathor, as a form of the Earth Mother, was the mistress of the mines and of precious stones and metals called Mafkat. It was here she gave birth to the blue-eyed golden Horus as her child, her golden calf or hawk of gold. The Egyptian laborers who worked the mines of the turquoise country in the Sinaitic Peninsula were worshippers of this golden Hathor and the golden Horus. These two are the divinities most frequently invoked in the religious worship of the Egyptian officers and miners residing in the neighborhood of the Mafkat mines. Also, the name for a mine in Egyptian is Ba or Bat, and Baba or Babait is a plural for mines, likewise for caverns, grottoes, and layers underground. Moreover, this district of the Sinaitic mines was designated Baba or Babait by the Egyptian miners, and this name of Baba or Babait, with the plural terminal for the mines, would seem to have been preserved and repeated for the Zimbabwe mines in Rhodesia, the Egyptian word being left there by the Egyptian workers. Lastly, as Mafekt, or Mafket, is a title of Hathor, as Mafek is an Egyptian name for the turquoise, for copper, and other treasures of the mines, as well as of Hathor. One wonders whether the name of Mafking was also derived from the Egyptian word Mafek. The earliest Taniter, or holy land of the Egyptians, was then the Puanta in the south which was sacred on account of its being the primeval home. But in the mythos, the place of coming forth has been given to the sun god in the east, and this became the holy land in the solar mythology, which has been too hastily identified by certain Egyptologists with Arabia as the eastern land. At present, we are more concerned with the original race and its primitive achievement than with the return wave from Egypt in the later ages of the pharaohs. The oasis in Africa was a heaven on earth, a paradise in nature, ready-made in the vast expanse of papyrus reed. Egypt from the beginning was based on the oasis, Uat. We might trace a form of the heptonomy, 
with which Egypt began in the seven oases, the great oasis of Abydos, called Uat, the great Theban oasis, the oasis of the Natron Lakes, the oasis of El Karga, the oasis of Sinai, the oasis of Dakel, and the oasis of Baniza. Maspero says the great oasis had been at first considered as a sort of mysterious paradise to which the dead went in their search of peace and happiness. It was called Uit or Uat. As late as the Persian epoch, the ancient tradition found its echo in the name of Isle of the Blessed, which was given to the great oasis. So soon as the deceased was properly equipped with his amulets and formulas, he set forth to seek the field of reeds. The field of reeds was the field of Uat, the papyrus reed, which had been repeated in the heavens from the Uat of Egypt, the Uat of the oasis, the Uat of the reed land that was in the beginning. For those who lived on the papyrus shoots when this was a primeval food, there was a world of plenty in the region of lakes, which would be looked back to as a very paradise by those who wandered forth into the waterless deserts and suffered cruelly from thirst and hunger amidst the arid wastes of burning sand. In seeking the fields of reeds, the deceased was going back in spirit to Uthanga, the cradle of the reeds, or to Karua, the land of the lakes, to Apta, the starting point, to Poanta, the ever-golden, to Myrta, the land of the two eyes, or some other form of primitive paradise, where, as the ritual has it, he would drink the waters of the sacred river at the sources of the Nile. This was the land where food and water had been abundant enough to furnish a type of everlasting plenty for the land of promise in the astronomical mythology and the eschatology. It is necessary to postulate a commencement in equatorial regions, in order that we may explain certain primeval representations in the land of Egypt. We see a deluge legend originating in the woman's failing to keep the secret of the water source, which was followed by an overwhelming devastating flood. We see that a legend of the first man, he who brought death into the world by disobeying the law of taboo, is indigenous to the natives of Uganda. A primitive picture of the beginning is also presented in an African story, which was told to Stanley by a native of the Bashko on the Iruwimi River called the Creation of Man. It is related that in the old, old time, all this land, and indeed the whole earth, was covered with sweet water. Then the water dried up or disappeared. No living thing was moving on the earth until one day a large toad squatted by one of the pools. How long it had lived or how it came into existence was not known, but it was suspected that the water must have brought it forth from some virtue of its own. On the whole earth there was but this one toad, which in relation to water was the frog. Then follows the legend of creation. The toad becomes the maker of the primal human pair, which came into being in the shape of twins. Like Sut and Horus or the Zulu black and white twins in their bed of reeds, and these are said to be the first like our kind that ever trod the earth. The legend we judge to be an African original relating to the primordial water in which the earth was figured as a large toad or frog at the time when no other living thing moved on the earth and there was no human creature known. 
The frog floating on the water in the act of breathing out of it was an arresting object to primitive man, and this became a type of earth emerging from the water of space. The constellation of Pisces Australis was known to the Arab astronomers as the frog. Indeed, the two fish, the southern fish and the whale, were named by them as the two frogs. But whichever type was first, a monstrous frog or huge fish, a turtle or the water cow, it was a figure of the earth amidst the firmamental water, in the lower part of which was the abyss. And here the primal pair are also born as twins, like Sut and Horus. In Egypt, the north celestial pole was variously imaged as a mountain summit, an island in the deep, a mound of earth, a papyrus plant or lotus in the waters of immensity, a tree, a stake, a pole, a pillar, a pyramid, and other types of the apex in heaven. In Equatoria, there was neither pole nor pole star fixed on high in the celestial north. On the other hand, there were two pole stars visible upon the two horizons, north and south. These, according to the imagery, might be represented by two jackals, two lions, two giraffes, mountains, the mount and horizon being synonymous, two trees, two pillars of the firmament, or by the two eyes of two watchers. Heaven's Eye Mountain is a Chinese title for the mount of the pole. This would apply when only one pole star was visible, but in Equatoria, there were two poles or mountains with the eyes of two non-setting stars upon the summits, the only two fixed stars in all the firmament. These we hold to be the pair of eyes or merti that was also a pair of jackals in the Kamite astronomical mythology. But first of the two poles as pillars, Josephus has preserved the tradition concerning two pillars that were erected in the land of Syriad. He tells us that the children of Seth, Egyptian set, were the inventors of astronomy, and in order that their inventions might not be lost, and acting upon Adam's prediction that the world was to be destroyed at one time by the force of fire, and at another time by the violence and quantity of waters, they made two pillars, the one of brick, the other of stone. They inscribed their discoveries upon them both, that in case the pillar of brick should be destroyed by the flood, the pillar of stone might remain and exhibit these discoveries to mankind, and also inform them that there was another pillar of brick erected by them. Now this remains in the land of Syriad to this day. Plato likewise speaks of these two columns in the opening of Timaeus. The place where the two pillars, or one of them, traditionally stood was in the land of Syriad. Where that is, no mortal knows, but Syri, in Egyptian, is a name for the south. Siri is also the mount that is figured as the twofold rock, which is equivalent to the pillars of the two horizons, south and north. Siri is also the name of the giraffe, a zootype of Sut, the overseer. Syriad, then, we take to be the land of the south where the pillar remains to this day. According to John Greaves, the old Oxford astronomer, these pillars of Seth were in the very same place where Manetho placed the pillars of Tat, called Syriad. It is possible to identify the missing pillar of the two, the pillar of the Sut in the south. There was a southern Anu and a northern Anu in Egypt, and possibly a relic of the two poles may be recognized in the two Anus, viz. Hermothenes, the Anu of the south, and Heliopolis, the Anu of the north. The original meaning of Anu appears to have been the place of the pillar or stone 
that marked the foundation which preceded the circle with a cross sign of station or dwelling place. There was an Egyptian tradition which connected Set, the inventor of astronomy, with Anu as the original founder of the pillar, which makes him the primary establisher of the pole. As an astronomical character, Sut was earlier than Shu. The Arabs also have a tradition that one of the pyramids was the burial place of Sut. The pillar of brick, being less permanent, went down as predicted in the deluge as a figure of the southern pole, whereas the pillar of stone remained forever as the image of the north celestial pole, or of Anu, the site of the pillar in the astronomical mythology. It is reported by Diodorus that Anu, Heliopolis in the solar mythos, was accounted by its inhabitants to be the oldest city in Egypt, which may have been mystically meant as Anu was also a city or station of the pole. The most ancient foundation in the northern heaven, described in the eschatology as the place of a thousand fortresses provisioned for eternity. The two pillars of Sut and Horus were primal as pillars of the two poles thus figured in the equatorial regions, as the two supports of heaven when it was first divided into two portions, south and north. And the pillar or mount of the south was given to Sut, the pillar or mount of the north to Horus. The typical two pillars are identified with and as Sut and Horus in the inscription of Shabaka from Memphis, in which it is said, the two pillars of the gateway of the house of Ta are Horus and Sut. The present interpretation is that the typical two pillars or props originated as figures of the two poles, the single pillar being an ideograph of Sut, that these were established in the two domains of Sut and Horus, to the south and north of the land in which the various dawn of astronomy first occurred, and that the types were preserved and re-erected in the earth of eternity as the two supports of the heaven suspended by Ta for the Manis in Amenta, even as the sky of earth had been uplifted and sustained by the two poles of the south and north in Equatoria. Sut and Horus then were the twin props of support twice over, once in Equatoria as the two poles, once in Amenta as the two tats of Ta. Further, two brothers, Sut and Horus, as the founders of the two poles in building the heavens for the ancient mother, may explain the American story of the two brothers who planted each a cane in the house of their grandmother when they started on their perilous journey to the land of Kibalba. The old mother was to know how they fared by the flourishing or withering of the tree, or cane, and whether they were alive or dead. Grimm traced the same legend in the story of the two children, who wished to leave their home and go forth to see the world. At parting, they say, we leave you the two golden lilies. From these you can see how we fare. If they are fresh, we are well. If they fade, we are ill. If they fall, we are dead. Now, the reason why this story is told in Central America, in India, and in Europe, we hold to be because it was first told in Africa and rendered mythically in Egypt. It appears quite possible that a form of the two typical pillars, which were visible at the equator, also survives in the two sacred poles of the Arunta natives in central Australia. These people down under have no northern pole or pole star of the north, but they carry two symbolic poles about with them, which they erect wherever they go as signs of locality or encampment, both of which are limited to the south and the north. One is called the Nertunja, 
This, so to say, is the north pole of the two, and is never met with in the south. The other, called the Waninga, is always limited to the south. The Nertunja is typical of the northern and the Waninga of the southern part of the Arunta tribe. Each of these, like the Egyptian Tat pillar, is a sign of establishing or founding, as is shown from its use in the ceremony of young man-making. In Greek myth, the Temple of Heaven was raised on high by two brothers, who in one version of Trophonius and Agamedes, the builders of the Temple of Apollo, the sinking of Trophonios into the cave also corresponds to the engulfing of Sut and his going down south with the disappearing pole. One of the two legendary pillars of Seth disappeared, the other remained. And when the nomads of the equatorial regions had begun the movement northward on the way that led them down the Nile, they would gradually lose sight of the southern pole star, and whatsoever else had been configurated with it in the nightly heaven would sink below the horizon south, like a subsidence of land in the celestial waters. Thus, in astronomical mythology, a fall from heaven, a sinking down in the waters called a deluge, and a lost primeval home or natural occurrences, as certain stars or constellations, disappeared from sight for those who traveled northward from the equatorial plain. And these celestial events would be told of as a mundane in the later legends of the fall and flood and man's lost paradise of everlasting peace and plenty. It is enough, however, for the present purpose that a star or constellation first assigned to Sut sank down into the dark abysm south and disappeared from the ken of the observers who were on their journey of 3,000 miles down into the valley of the Nile. It is certain that Sut went down south to some sort of netherworld, and so became the power of darkness in Amenta, when our earth had been completely hollowed out by Ta, and Amenta below became the south to the circumpolar paradise in the celestial north. The ancient Egyptians had no antipodes on the outside of the earth. Amenta and the netherworld was their antipodes. Their two poles were celestial and subterrestrial. The North Pole was at the summit of the mount. The South Pole was in the root land of the earth below. The ritual describes the ways of darkness in the entrance to the Tuat as the tunnels of Sut, which tends to show that a way to the netherworld was made by Sut when his star and standing ground went under the abyss in the beginning of the South, where the Egyptians localized the Tuat or entrance to the underworld which was the place of egress for the life that came into the world by water from the recesses of the south. Without doubt, the contention of Sut and Horus began with the conflict of darkness and light or drought and water when these were elemental powers, and the birthplace of the twin brothers, one black, one white, and was in the bed of reeds. This phase was continued by the twins that likewise struggled for supremacy in the dark and light halves of the moon which imaged the light eye of Horus and the dark eye of Sut. But the war extended to the whole of nature that was divided in halves betwixt the Sut and Horus twins, who were the firstborn of the ancient mother and two of her several characters. In Central Africa, the year is divided into two seasons of rain and drought. These are equivalent to the two opposite domains of Horus and Sut as powers of good and evil. The wind from the north in the rainy season is warm and wet and beneficent. On the other hand, the wind that comes up from the South Pole is witheringly dry, 
The wind, therefore, of Sut, the power inimical to man and animal and physical nature. The desert drought, like darkness, was an element assigned to Sut. As this was the region of drought and sterility and Typhonian sands, and Sut, the tawny complexioned, was the force that dominated in the south under the same name. We may see how and where he first acquired his character in Egyptian mythology, as representative of the arid desert opposed to water, fertility, and food. Thus Sut versus Horus imaged the south versus north. Sut was deadly as the drought, Horus was right as rain. This contention of the combatants and of the south versus the north was continued in the stellar mythos until their reconciliation was effected by some other god, such as Shu, Tot, or Seb. When Sut or his star went down from the horizon, mount or pole in the south, he gradually sank to the lowermost parts of the abyss, which in the eschatology was called the secret earth of Amenta. Here, his character as the opener of roads or ways in the astronomy was continued into the Egyptian eschatology by Ap-Uapt, or the jackal as the conductor of souls. He was the deity of the dark. In the oblong zodiac of Dendera, the two jackals of the south and north continued in the solar mythos, are figured opposite to each other. These represent the two forms of Apuat, the opener of ways, who was imaged as a jackal, the seer in the dark. One jackal was known as guide of the southern ways, the other as opener of the northern ways. No Egyptologist has gone further than to suggest that this north and south may have been in Amenta as they also were. But no one has dared to dream of a beginning with the primitive paradise in Equatoria. Egyptian Wisdom Deluded visionaries, lift your eyes. Behold the truths from which your fables rise. These were realities of heavenly birth, and ye pursue their shadows on the earth. The wisdom of the Egyptians, said Augustine, what was it but astronomy? The answer is that it was not simply the science of astronomy in the modern sense, but astronomical mythology was the subject of subjects with the ancient mystery teachers of the heaven. As the Egyptian Urshi, or astronomers, were self-designated, the most puerile report of all which has played false with us so long is the exoteric tradition in the Hebrew Pentateuch. Professor Sais has asserted that Babylonia was really the cradle of astronomical observation to which one might reply with the wise Egyptian, Do you really know that, or is it that you only pretend to know? The author of Researches into the Origin of the Constellations of the Greeks, Phoenicians, and Babylonians also claims a Euphratian origin for these. Whilst admitting that Egypt was not indebted to any foreign region for her original scheme of constellations, which are entirely or almost entirely distinct, but it is useless or puerile to discuss the genesis of astronomical mythology with the African origins omitted, and without allowing for the alterations that were made by Greeks and Euphratians in the course of transmitting a celestial chart. To omit the Camite wisdom from the reckoning is to dispense with evolution and leave no ground for a beginning, no gauge of time nor data of development. Moreover, the primary question of the origins is not astronomical, but mythological. The types of this sign language have been founded in totemism. These were first employed 
for distinguishing the human motherhood and brotherhoods. They were reapplied to the elemental powers in mythology and afterwards repeated in the constellation figures as a mode of record in the heavens, which can still be read by aid of the Egyptian wisdom, but not by means of the Semitic legendary lore. The primitive constellations might be described as Egyptian ideographs configured in groups of stars. With the view of determining time and season and of registering the prehistoric human past. The principle of representation was similar to that of the modern teachers who draw their diagrams upon the blackboard. In like manner, the mystery teachers of the heavens approximately shaped the constellation figures on the background of the dark, to be seen at night and to be expounded in the mysteries. For example, if they were desirous of memorizing some likeness of the old primeval home in Apta, at the horn point of the earth, this would naturally be done by repeating the especial imagery of the equatorial regions at the highest point of beginning, in the northern heaven as seen in Egypt. Or if they wished to show that the river of the inundation issued from an abyss of water in the remotest south, this could be accomplished by constellating the course of the stream in heaven on its long and winding way from the star Atronar to the star Rigel, at the foot of Orion. Hence, the water of the inundation was depicted in and as the river Arandanus. A contest between Horus, the Lord of Light, and the Serpent of the Dark was made uranographic and the Serpent Holder. The conflict betwixt Horus, who came by water, and the Dragon of Drought was exhibited by the Apap Reptile, being drowned in the inundation as the monster Hydra. The scene configurated in the southern heaven, where the conqueror Orion rose to bruise the serpent's head or crush the dragon underfoot, is also represented in the ritual. When Apap is once more put in bonds, cut up piecemeal, and submerged in the green lake of heaven. Other imagery in the planisphere bears witness to the drowning of the dragon Apap in the waters of the inundation. The monster imaged in Hydra is treated as carrion by the crow that is perched upon it, pecking at its dead body. Or if we suppose the mystery teachers of the heavens wish to constellate a figure of the mount of earth amidst the waters of surrounding space, and that this was in the time of the most primitive mound builders when no conical pillar could as yet be carved in wood or stone, how would they figure the object picture forth as a uranograph? The earth was thought of as a mount amid the firmamental water, and to image this they would naturally raise a mound of earth. At the same time, the heap of earth had acquired a sacred character in relation to the dead, and had become a kind of altar mound piled up with offerings of food. And such a figure we find in Era, the southern altar or the altar mound. The earliest altar raised had been the mound of earth, and this was used to typify the mount of earth. Eratos, speaking of the southern altar's sacred seat, calls this constellation a mighty sign. Manilius says of this constellation, Aramundi templum est. It is traditionally connected with the war of the earth-born giants, or elemental powers which were succeeded by the glorious ones, or kuti in the astral mythos. The Mesopotamian mound builders likewise show us that the most primitive type of foundation was the mound. That the earth mound passed into the foundation of brickwork as the pillar, and the pillar culminating in the ziggurat. So in Egypt, the earth mound led up to the pyramid with steps and culminated in the altar mound of the stone. 
the Chinese still call the altar a mound because of its being a figure of the earth amidst the nun. The altar mound was raised immediately after the deluge in the Semitic mythos. In this way, the teachers who first glorified the storied window of the heavens, like some cathedral of immensity with their pictures of the past, are demonstrably Egyptian, because the sign language, the mythos, the legends, and the eschatology involved are wholly Egyptian, and entirely independent of all who came after them. The so-called wisdom of the ancients was Egyptian when the elemental powers were represented first as characters in mythology. It was Egyptian when that primeval mythology was rendered astronomically. It is also Egyptian in the phase of eschatology, speaking generally, and it would be difficult to speak too generally from the present standpoint. The Egyptian mythology is the source of the Marchen, the legends and the folklore of the world, whilst the eschatology is the fountainhead of all the religious mysteries that lie betwixt the earliest totemic and the latest Osirian that were ultimately continued in the religion of ancient Rome. The mysteries were a dramatic mode of communicating the secrets of primitive knowledge in sign language, when this had been extended to the astronomical mythology. Hence, we repeat the Egyptian Urshi, or astronomers, were known by the title of Mystery Teachers of the Heavens, because they explained the mysteries of primitive astronomy. For one thing, a later theology has wrought havoc with the beginnings previously evolved and naturally rendered. And we have consequently been egregiously mizzled and systematically duped by the Semitic perversions of the ancient wisdom. There was indeed a fall from the foothold first attained by the Egyptians to the dismal swamp of the Assyrian and Hebrew legends. In Egyptian mythology, compared with the Babylonian, the same types that represent evil in the one had represented good in the other. The old great mother of evil, called the dragon horse in the Assyrian version, was neither the source nor the product of evil in the original. The serpent goddess Ranut, as renewer of the fruits of earth in the soil or in the tree, is not a representative of evil. We hold that moral evil in the mythical domain is an abortion of theology, which was mainly Semitic in its birth. The Kamite beginning with the Great Mother and the elemental powers, which are definite and identifiable enough in the Egyptian wisdom, became confused and chimerical in Babylonian and Hebrew versions of the same sign language. The dark of a benighted heaven followed day. Elemental evils were converted into moral evil. The types of good and ill were indiscriminately mixed preeminently so in the reproduction of the old great mother as Tiamat. Original, she was a form of Mother Earth, the womb of life, the suckler, the universal mother in an elemental phase. But the types of good and evil were confounded in the later rendering. The creation of evil as a miscreation of theology is plainly traceable in the Akkadian, Babylonian, Assyrian, and Hebrew remains. The Great Mother, variously named Tiamat, Zikum, Ninkigal, or Nana, were not originally evil. She represented source in perfect correspondence to Apt, Ta'ert, or Ranut in the Egyptian representation of the Great Mother, who, howsoever hideous, was not bad or inimical to man, the mother and nurse of all, the mother of gods and men, who was the renewer and bringer forth of life in earth and water. 
nor were the elemental offspring evil, although imaged in the shape of monsters or of zootypes. As Egyptian, the seven Anunnaki were spirits of earth, born of the earth mother in the earth. They were not wicked spirits. The elements are not immoral. These are a primitive form of the seven great gods who sit on golden thrones in Hades as lords of life and masters of the underworld. Moreover, the seven Nunu or Anunnas can be traced to their Egyptian origin. In the Cuthean legend of creation, we are told that the great gods created warriors with the body of a bird and men with the faces of ravens. Tiamat gave them suck. Their progeny, the mistress of the gods, created. In the midst of the celestial mountains, they grew up and became heroes and increased in number. Seven kings, brethren, appeared as begetters, who are given names as the signs of personality. Now the seven children of the Great Mother as Egyptian were produced as two plus five. The Sut and Horus twins were born warriors or fighters. They are portrayed as two birds, the black vulture or raven of Sut and the gold hawk of Horus. These, the first two children, imaged as two birds, one of which was black, will or may account for the two bird races, one of which had the face of a raven and wore a black race, or were the black heads in a cod. The Sut and Horus twins were succeeded by five other powers, so that there were seven altogether, all brothers, all males or begetters, the seven which constituted a primary order of gods as fellow males who were the Nunu of Egypt which became the Anunnas, or primordial male deities of ancient Babylonia. But the seven nature powers evolved in Egyptian mythos were the offspring of the great earth mother, not the progeny of Apap. They were native to the nether earth, but were not wicked spirits. They are spoken of in the ritual as those seven Uraeus deities who are born in Amenta. The serpent type is employed to denote the power, but it is the good serpent, the Uraeus serpent of life and of renewal, not the evil reptile Apop. These the Euphratians changed into the seven evil spirits or devils of their theology. The spawn of Apop in Egypt are the Sabao, which were numberless in physical phenomena and never were portrayed as seven in number. The Euphratians turned the evil serpent Apop into Tiamat the old great mother in the abyss of birth, where she has been supposed to have brought forth the seven powers of evil and to have been herself the old serpent with seven heads. In Egypt, happily, we get beyond the rootage of mythology in Babylonia and Akkad. The goddess Ranut was a form of the earth goddess as the serpent mother. The serpent brood or dragon progeny of Ranut are mentioned in the ritual where they have become a subject of ancient knowledge in the mysteries. Elsewhere, they are called the seven divine uri, or serpents of life. There are no seven serpents of death, no seven evil serpents in the Kamite representation. The seven uri, though elemental, born of matter and of earth, earthy, like their mother, are not evil powers. Neither are they in the same category as the Sabao of Apap, or the Samai, fiends of Sut, whereas in the Euphratean version, 
These have become seven wicked spirits as the evil brood of the great mother Tiamat. They are also portrayed as the seven heads or potencies of an infernal snake, which had been Egyptian but without the seven heads, the types of good and evil being mixed up together as Euphratian. The Kamite elemental powers were just the powers of the elements represented by zootypes. They might be sometimes fearsome, but they were not baneful. The inimical forces of external nature, the evil spawn of drought, plagues, dearth, and darkness, called the Sabao or the Sami, had preceded these, whereas in Babylonia the two categories are confused and the seven have been reproduced as altogether evil. They are sevenfold in all things evil, seven evil demons, seven serpents of death, seven evil winds, seven wicked spirits, seven in the hollows of the earth, seven evil monsters in the watery abyss, seven evil incubi, seven plagues. But even these seven baleful and injurious spirits of Babylonia originated as powers of the elements, no matter where. Hence the first is a scorpion of rain, the second is a monster with unbridled mouth, the third is the lightning flash, the fourth is a serpent, the fifth is a raging dog, the sixth is a tempest, the seventh is the evil wind. Here the whole scheme of evil is meteorological and is based upon bad northern weather. The theological perversion and the degradation of the type are traceable in Babylonia. The seven serpent powers were originally the same. In Egypt, there are seven spirits of the earth, and of the seven in Babylonia, it is said in the magical text from Eridu, those seven in the earth were born, those seven in the earth grew up, those seven from the earth have issued forth. Only in Babylonia, the great mother as the crocodile type of water has been confounded with the apap reptile of evil and made to spawn the evil powers in the darkness of later ignorance. We can watch the change in a Babylonian version of the mythos. The seven nature forces have originated as seven evil powers. They were rebellious spirits and workers of calamity that were born in the lower part of heaven, or the firmamental deep. They are called the forces of the deep, forever rising in rebellion. In short, they are one with the Sabao of the ritual, who were the progeny of Apap, which had been confounded with the seven elemental spirits who were not originally evil. The beneficent Great Mother Earth, who had been imaged by the sloughing serpent as a type of renewal and rejuvenescence, was transmogrified into the serpent of theology, the very devil in a female guise, the author of evil that was ultimately represented as a woman who became the mother of the human race and who doomed her offspring to eternal torment ere she gave them birth in time. The Hebrews followed the Babylonians in confusing the Aureus serpent of life with the serpent of death. The primal curse was brought into the world by Apop, the reptile of drought, dearth, and darkness, plague, and disease. But the evil serpent began and ended in physical phenomena. Apop was never a spiritual type and was never divinized, not even as a devil. The beneficent serpent Ranut represents the mother of life, the giver of food and fruits of the earth or the tree. She is portrayed as the mother both in the form of a serpent and also as the human mother. But good and evil have been badly mixed together in the Hebrew version of the Babylonian perversion of the Egyptian wisdom.
the way in which the Kamite mythos was converted into Semitic legendary lore and finally into biblical history is palpably apparent in the story of the fall. The woman offering fruit as temptress in the tree was previously represented in sign language as the serpent, which was the symbol of renewal in the tree, as is shown when the reptile offers the fruit to the man. Thence came the serpent woman, who was a compound of the zootype and the anthrotype, and who was damned as Mother Eve, as deified as Ranut, the giver of fruits of earth. Conclusive evidence of the way that changes were made in the appropriation of the prototypes, and the readaption to the change of fauna, and likewise of later theology can be shown in relation to the primordial Great Mother, who was Tiamat in Babylonia. One of her typical titles is the dragon horse, and as the Egyptians had no horse, it might be fancied at first sight that such a compound type as the dragon horse, which also figures in Chinese mythology, was not Egyptian. The ancient Egyptians had no horse, and their dragon was a crocodile. The hippopotamus was their first water horse as male, that is, the water bull. As female, it was the water cow. Now, the old first genetrics apt, kept, or ta'ert, when represented as a compound figure, is a hippopotamus, that is the water horse in front, and a crocodile, that is the dragon behind. The dual type of Tiamat, the dragon horse, is based on the crocodile and hippopotamus, which are to be seen combined in the twofold character of the great mother apt. And these two animals were unknown to the fauna of Akkad and Babylonia. Thus, as Babylonian, they are not derived directly from nature, but from the mythology and the zootypes that were already extant in Egypt as African. Horus and Sebek was the great fish of the inundation, typical of food and water. This great fish is the crocodile, which was applied to Horus as a figure of force in his capacity of solar god. The crocodile in Egypt being a prototype of the mythical dragon, not the evil dragon, but the solar dragon which was known in relation to Sebek and to Saturn as the dragon of life. In one of the Greco-Egyptian planispheres, this dragon keeps its original form and remains a crocodile. It is portrayed as a constellation of enormous magnitude and is truly the great fish of Horus Sebek. It was first of all a figure of inundation constellated in the stellar mythos and reapplied to the power that crossed the waters as the solar Horus of the double horizon. The only form of evil to be found in the abyss was the dark and deadly power of drought, that, as feared, might drink up dry all the water. This was figured as the Apap reptile or some other form of the monster Hydra, the prototypal serpent of the sea. The mother of life in the abyss was the giver of water as the wet nurse of the world, not the destroyer of the water. In Babylonia, the tree of life was changed into a tree of death. The serpent in the tree that offers fruit for food, as Renut, the giver of food and representative of Mother Earth, was transformed into the evil serpent that brought death into the world and all our woe, but which had originated as a beneficent figure in the Kamite representation of external nature. The transmogrifying of Tiamat, the mother of all and suckler of the seven elemental powers, into the dragon of evil might be followed on other lines of descent, as in the conflict of Bel Merodach and the dragon. 
and the Egyptian representation, Apop the dragon, of drought is drowned in the water by Horus of the inundation, whose weapon, therefore, is the water flood. Now, in warring with Tiamat, the deluge is the mighty weapon wielded by Bel. Bel launched the deluge, his mighty weapon, against Tiamat, inundating her covering or drowning the dragon of drought. Thus, Tiamat is destroyed by Bel with the deluge, where Apap was drowned by Horus in the inundation. This again shows that the great mother Tiamat, suckler as the giver of water, had been converted into the evil dragon of drought. The good crocodile had also been transmuted into the evil dragon and portrayed as falling down head foremost from the starry summit of heaven, to be trodden underfoot and crushed beneath the heel of Horus, who is Heracles in Greece, Krishna in India, Merodach in Assyria. It was the same with the other fauna. The pregnant hippopotamus was changed for the always female bear or the pregnant woman. The two dogs have been substituted for the two jackals of the south and north, the first two openers of the roads in heaven. The eagle of Zeus takes the place of the hawk of Ra, and the raven, the black Neh of Sut. A legend follows, and the conflict betwixt the eagle and the serpent is substituted for that of the warring hawk and serpent in the Egyptian mythos. The huge Apap reptile of drought and darkness has been supplanted by the chimerical monster that is slain by Gilgamesh, the solar god. And when the totemic matriarchate has been followed by the patriarchate and the goddess of the living word in heaven has been changed in the Euphratean system for the Lord who is the voice of the firmament, when the waterman has replaced the multimammalian wateress, the cow or sow of an earlier system of signs, when the heroes or mighty ones have been superseded by simple shepherds of the heavenly flocks, it becomes a question of very minor import who made the changes and forged the counterfeits, or whether the originals were deliberately disguised by the Akkadians or Babylonians, Phoenicians or Greeks. In the course of the present inquiry, we shall learn that the creation exoterically described in the Semitic legends of the beginning was not cosmogonical. Neither was it what one writer has called it the cosmography of appearances. It was uranography, not cosmography, and uranography is sign language constellated in the stars. That which has been called chaos in the legends of creation was a condition in which there was neither law nor order, time nor name, nor means of representing natural phenomena. But it does not mean there were no natural phenomena because there had been no mode of expression. Things existed even when they had no name or record in the Babylonian mythology. It was never pretended in the Egyptian wisdom that there was any creation of the elements. Ground to stand on, food to eat, water to drink, air to breathe, had always been and were in no wise dependent upon any mode of representation. Whereas the mythical representation did depend upon the elements or nature forces being already extant, to be named or to be constellated and become pictorial for the purpose of the mystery teachers. In no land or literature has the mythical mode of representation been perverted and reduced to driveling foolishness more fatally than in some of the Hebrew legends, such as that of Jonah and the great fish, which is connected with the origin of the fish man in mythology who was born of a fish mother, 
whom we shall identify with the constellation of the southern fish, and Horus of the inundation. The most ancient type of the fish was female, as a representative of the great mother earth in the water. This, as Egyptian, was the crocodile. She was the suckler of crocodiles in the inundation. She was the bringer forth as the great fish or crocodile in the astronomical mythology. One of her children was the crocodile-headed Sebek, who made the passage of the nun by the night as sun god in the solar mythos. The fishman was at first the crocodile of Egypt, next the crocodile-headed figure of Horus, who was called the crocodile god in the form of a man. The deceased assumes this form to cross the waters in the netherworld, because it had been a figure of the solar god in the mythology. The conversion of the crocodile god in the nun to the fish man of Babylonia is thus made plausible. Jonah is a form of the fish man in the biblical story, which is neither mythology nor eschatology, and therefore a figure of the solar god who made the passage of the waters as Horus the crocodile, or as Ea the fish man of Nineveh. As usual in later legend, the anthropomorphic rendering refaces and thus defaces the type. It was the fish itself that swam the waters of the inundation. It was the typical fish that swam the nocturnal waters, or the sun god represented by the mighty fish. Whereas this being history, Jonah is made mere man. And therefore needed the great fish to carry him across the Nun, or to land him at Nineveh. Birth or rebirth from the great fish and the lower Nun is one of the oldest traditions of the race. It was represented in the mysteries and constellated in the heavens as a means of memorial. The great fish that landed Jonah on dry ground may still be seen as Kitos, with its enormous mouth wide open at the point of emanation from the nun, just where the landing place on earth is represented in the equatorial regions on the celestial chart. Naturally, there would be some changes in the constellations with the change of fauna, as the primitive wisdom passed from land to land. But that is a different matter from working the oracle of the celestial orrery on behalf of false and therefore all the more virulent theology. It can be demonstrated that the astronomical mythology of Egypt passed into Akkad and Babylonia, with the race of the Kushite Blackets to become the wisdom of the Chaldees and the Persian Magi in after ages, including such primary types as the abyss of the beginning in the lower firmament, the great mother as a fish or dragon, crocodile in the abyss, and the fish man born of the fish mother from the abyss. According to the legend related by Barossus, a divine fish man, Oanes or Oan, who had his dwelling in the Persian Gulf or Erytherian Sea, came forth from thence to teach the Chaldeans all they ever knew when, as it is said in the native tradition, the people wisely repeated his wisdom. In all probability, the instructor as a fishman in Babylonia was represented by Ye, whose consort was Davki, or Davkina, the earth mother corresponding to the Egyptian great mother, one of whose names was Tef. Among the chief deities reverenced by the rulers of Teloh, was one whose name is expressed by the ideographs of a fish and an enclosure, which served in later days to denote the name of Nina or Nineveh. 
The same sign, i.e. of a fish and enclosure in the Egyptian hieroglyphics, signifies an, to appeal, to show, to teach, as did the fish man. An is Egyptian in a name of the teacher, the scribe, the priest. An was the fish in Egypt. An was the fish for ideograph. Is an ancient throne named that was found by Lipsius among the monumental titles on a tomb near the pyramids of Giza. This on to show, to reveal, on the fish of the enclosure, on the teacher as the fish, is the likeliest original of the Wan, or Wanis, who issued from the waters to show the Babylonians how to live, as the mythos was reflected in the later legend. Horus Sebek was the earliest fishman known to mythology. He calls himself the fish in the form of a man. Yet he issued from the female fish as a fish, the crocodile as son from the crocodile, as apt, the mother, and as not as a man ejected from the mouth of a fish, as the legend reads when ignorantly literalized. The fish mother also survived in the divine lady Nina, who was represented by the ideograph of a fish enclosed in a basin of water which has the same significance as the fish mother in the lake at Ascalon. But to reach the beginning, the bottom must be plumbed in the abyss or nether parts of the firmamental nun upon the outside of the mount, by means of which the earth was imaged in the astronomical mythology. The abyss was known by various names in different versions of the mythos, in the Phoenician, Bav, or Deep, it is the bow of the Hebrew Genesis. It is the bow or bahu as Egyptian. The word bahu is also named for God of the inundation called the power of the southern lakes. I am bahu the great is said four times over in the magic papyrus at the breaking forth of the water power from its southern source in the abyss of the dragon, the crocodile, or the southern fish. The Egyptian also has an earlier form of the word bahu in bab. For the well or whirlpool as a welling source of water, another term for this outrance from the nun is the tepth, which signifies the abyss, the source, the outlet. The tiavat or thavath of barosis is a form of the great mother as a type of the watery abyss, which is the Egyptian tept. The abyss, the source, the well, the hole from whence the water issues the dwelling underground where the dragon horse gave suck to her brood of monsters in the earth. Tepth, or Tept, is an Egyptian name for the old first great mother as a figure of source. The likewise has been applied to the place of emanation for the waters of the Nile, which issued from the well of source, the Bahu, Tept, or Tuat. But the Tept is source, the lair of the dragon, the hold of the snake, had been the outrance of the Nile from the abyss before there was a goddess Thavath or Tiamat in Assyria. So it was with the Bao, Bahu, or Bab. These names had been applied to the source of the inundation itself and localized in Egypt before they were repeated in the astronomical mythology to become a subject of Semitic legendary lore. The Bao, the Bahu, or Bab is Egyptian. The Tepth or Tuat are likewise Egyptian. And these names had been already applied to the source of the inundation and to the facts of Earth that formed the mold of the astronomical mythology. In the later Semitic legend, it was said the Earth was founded on the flood, 
as if it were afloat upon the water of the abyss. But according to the primary expression, the earth stood on its own bottom in the water, at the fixed center, with the tree upon the summit as a figure of food and water and vegetation. The mythical abyss of the beginning was the welling place of water underground where life was brought to birth by the great mother from the womb of the abyss. In the ritual, this is described as the Tuat, a place of entrance to and egress from the lower earth of Amenta. It is a secret deep that nobody can fathom, which sends out light in the dark, and its offerings are eatable plants. It is the birthplace of water and vegetation, and therefore more abstractly of life. The bottomless pit is a figure that was derived from this unplumbed deep inside the earth itself. From this abyss, the Mother Earth, as womb of life, had brought forth her elemental progeny as the perennial renewers of food to eat, water to drink, and air to breathe. The Tuat in the recesses of the south is likewise identifiable in the hymns as the secret source of the River Nile, which is thus traced to the abyss. Such was the birthplace of the beginning, the birthplace of water in the beginning, from which the papyrus plants arose as the primeval food and as the fact is registered in the ritual. In the magic papyrus, the abyss is comprehensively spoken of as the water's well. It is the habitat of the dragon called the crocodile coming out of the abyss. It is also the lair of the apap monster, of whom it is said by Shu, if he who is in the water opens his mouth, I will let the earth fall into the water's well. Being the south made north, or the earth turned upside down, here the two dragons can be identified together as the crocodile dragon of water and the apap dragon of drought, that were at war from the beginning as antagonists in the abyss. The strife in the abyss was betwixt the crocodile of water and the fiery dragon of drought, the two dragons of good and evil, Sebek Horus and the dragon or reptile of Apop. Both were born of the abyss, hence the scolia on chapter 17 of the ritual ad the devourer comes from the lake of Puanta, or the water of the abyss, which the Egyptians traced to the recesses in the south. The beginning in heaven, as on earth, was with water. Water was the first thing rendered uranographically, not created in the southern hemisphere. This, when gathered into one place, was localized as the water. The Egyptians had a huge southern constellation dedicated to Manat, the wet nurse called the Stars of the Water. The southern fish and Ketos are both depicted in this water of the south or the abyss. Aratos, speaking of the stars in the neighborhood of these great fishes or monsters of the deep, says, They are all of them called the water. Earth, the great mother, was imaged as the breeder of life and the bringer forth from this abyssal water in the south. She was represented in two mythical characters. In one, she is the mother who brought forth on dry ground as the hippopotamus, or its equivalent type. In the other, she was the mother of life in water who was figured as the southern fish, low down in the deep of the southern heaven. In mythology, that which has been called creation begins with duplicating by dividing. Darkness was divided from light, dry land as breathing place was divided from water, the north was divided from the south, and earth was divided from heaven, as in the Japanese creation. So the power of the two monsters in the Book of Enoch became separated on the same day, 
one being in the depths of the sea and one in the desert. That is, one in the water as Leviathan, the crocodile or dragon, and one as the hippopotamus on dry ground. Enoch asks the angel to show him the power of those monsters and how they become separated on the same day of creation, one in the depths of the sea, above the springs of waters, and one in the dry desert. It is said of the two monsters that they have been prepared by the people of God to become food. In this there is a broken ray of the refracted mythos. The two monsters had represented food and drink from the first. One as the mother of life in the earth, the other in the waters. These two monsters were prepared for food in the garden or enclosure at the beginning. The name of one is Behemoth, the name of the other Leviathan. Behemoth is the Egyptian Bekamut, the female hippopotamus, and Leviathan answers to the crocodile or dragon of the deep. The rabbis repeated a true tradition when they rendered the biblical Behemoth, not as a plural of majesty, but as a pair of beasts. They were a pair of beasts in the mythology of Egypt. The female behemoth was the original great mother Kep, or Apt. The male was her son. The crocodile also, as zootype, was both male and female. For his purpose, however, Enoch makes Leviathan a male monster and behemoth female. Of course, the type is or may be differentiated by the sex. The two monsters in the Egyptian starry scheme are both female as two forms of the great mother who was the hippopotamus in her forepart and the crocodile behind, or the crocodile in the south and the hippopotamus in the north. Thus, the hippopotamus and crocodile, which were natural in the Nile, had become two huge, indefinite monsters of legendary lore in the Book of Enoch, and the two survived as the types of dry and wet for land and water. The suggestion now to be made is that the two monsters of dry and wet or earth and water were constellated as the southern fish and Ketos, or the whale, but that the whale had been substituted for the hippopotamus by the Euphratians or the Greeks. The southern fish on the celestial globe is portrayed in the act of emanating a stream of water from its mouth, whereas the monster Ketos is depicted as the breather out of the water, the two being representative of the earth as the mother of life and the water called the abyss. In the Sut and Horus mythos, the first two children of the ancient mother represent the conditions of dry and wet. They were born twins because the conditions were co-extent on earth and water. In the course of time, everything that was dry, desiccative, or of the desert was ascribed to Sut, whereas the products of water were assigned to Horus. Hence, the two monsters were continued as types of the twins, the hippopotamus of earth, as male was given to Sut, the crocodile of water was given to Horus to typify the fish as food of the inundation. The abyss of waters is described by Barosus as the habitat of most hideous beings, which had been produced by a twofold principle that was as yet undiscreted into wet and dry. The person who was said to have presided over them was a female named Omaroka. Then came Belos, and cut the woman asunder, and of one half formed the earth, and the other half the heaven, or firmament. This is a mode of discreting the twofold principle of the dry earth and the celestial water. The story told by Barosus is a later legendary form of the mythos. The duplication of the motherhood is the same, but with a change of type. The later woman has taken the place of the cow that was cut in two, 
divided or made twain as the water cow of earth and the milch cow of heaven. Omaroka is the great mother who was one as the representative of earth and then was divided to become the representative of earth and water. The formation of earth and heaven out of the halves is identical with separating earth and water and distinguishing wet from dry. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.